Okay, we're passing out the suggested, the first half of the suggested paper topics for the second paper. I got requests by email from people who said, we want to see what a question on this subject would look like, and we'd like to be able to think about a question over vacation. So we, this is about as far as we've got to, uh, with our understanding and our reading this time through. And we'll give you another bunch, six more, say, at, right after vacation. But this is enough to t show you possible topics. And I just reprinted the, the Grand Inquisitor chart on the back because I hate to waste paper, and I suspect that people don't bring the chart every time I tell them to, and today is the time we really need it. So I, there you have it. Now, let's go back to where we were. It seems like somehow ages ago. And so Yvonne has convinced, remember we did rebellion last time. Yvonne convinced Aliasha in, and that the world's corrupt and it's immoral and we shouldn't agree to create it and anybody who's in it should uh, not agree to stay there and, uh, but should leave. And part of the question was, could anybody forgive the people who tortured children? And Aliasha made the mistake of saying, yes, the God-man, Jesus, has the right to forgive. He was innocent and he suffered. And he, uh -oh. and he need help. Beatrice. Thank you. What a great combination. Good. Okay. Yeah. Seems okay. Let's. So, and I, you just need to be filled in a little bit. Dostoevsky's got his own agenda, so to speak, which he's putting in the mouth of Ivan. Ivan is going to show to Alyosha that this Christ figure who is perfect and who has, you know, no, has done nothing wrong and yet suffers, that is uh, not, a, uh, would, would be a dangerous kind of person to have around. It's the kind of Graham Greene story that innocence is dangerous, only it's even more extreme. It's the people who are perfectly innocent, who n always tell the truth and so forth, are dangerous. How many have read The, Ili the Idiot? Pro probably not very many. Okay, I think the idiot is much misunderstood, though again, I haven't read a lot of the literature and perhaps somewhere it is understood. I take it, the idiot is this beautiful person who is absolutely pure by a kind of brain disease. He's sort of lost all of his selfishness, all of his sensuality. He's just uh, the, the perfect Christ figure come back to the modern Russia. And the moral of the story, I believe, is that he creates complete havoc. By the end of the book, everybody is destroyed into despair and suicide and so forth because he tells everybody the absolute truth, that if he tells the women who fall in love with him that he doesn't really love them. He tells, I don't, I don't even remember, it's been so long. But uh, I, don't, I think it's supposed to be a criticism of this perfect uh, Jesus figure. And in general, uh, it's interesting to note that all the sort of saving people, that, that is, people who are able to save other people because they are saint-like, have a dark past. Now, you, re you, you remember Zosima's dark past? What was his? I think we mentioned it last time. Uh, what, did, what, what, what was he before he became a saint-like 
person. He was in the army, and he was brutal, and he slapped his orderly so much that his orderly bled, and that's when he feels bad, and we'll go back to that, how he realizes and changes his life. But he has an understanding of evil, of, of uh, uh, brutality, of selfishness and sadism and so forth from his past. And uh, the idiot who doesn't have is in trouble. Uh, the, how many read The Possessed? Anybody? I mean, these are sort of suggestions for when you do read these other two great books. In The Possessed, his father, Tihon, is the sort of Zosima figure. And he has an alcoholic past. They all have something. All these people couldn't help the other people who are uh, vulnerable and, and, and weak and, and, and so forth if they, hadn't, if they didn't understand what it is to be vulnerable and sinful and weak. And they all do because they all were. But, so that, but now back to Ivan. He's going to show that this innocent, pure Jesus figure is making, would make impossible demands on people because he just doesn't understand people's limitations. And the Grand Inquisitor shows that, um, in, says, in, because you make these impossible demands on people, that you, that you want them to be, in effect, perfect, and they're not, we have to fix it. We have to set up a world in which sort of fallible, imperfect human beings can lead happy lives, and your world he says to the Jesus figure, isn't like that. Um, now, the other thing, I'm just clearing stuff out of the way. I'm going to jump into the Grand Inquisitor. There, there is unbelievable misunderstanding of the Grand Inquisitor story itself. I, I asked last time who had read it, and only one or two people, and apparently they weren't misled. But a famous case of, being, of, of somebody who should know better saying just the kind of stupid things that then get repeated over and over in the literature because they should know better. The guy named Burdayev, who was a friend of Dostoevsky's and a kind of early Russian existentialist, says the following. The legend of the Grand Inquisitor contains the best of the constructive part of Dostoevsky's religious ideas. It is noteworthy that the extremely powerful vindication of Christ, which is what the legend is, should be put in the mouth of the atheist Ivan Karamazov. Well, when you discover that your view is as weird as that, that the, that the Christ figure is being spelled out in, by, the, by the atheist, you may wonder whether you got it right. But it never occurs, I guess, to Verdayev to wonder whether he got it right or all the people who think he must have got it right and go on like that. The only way to find out is to look at the, uh, the, uh, the events very carefully. And now we're connected up where we were last time. I want to say that this is an antinomy. That is, there's going to be, as on the chart, a thesis and an antithesis. And in an antinomy, there is always, the, in an antinomy, each side, remember, argues for the truth of its view by showing the other side is impossibly, hopelessly wrong. And since there are only two sides, the way an antinomy is set up, they keep arguing back and forth, each one showing the other one must be right because the other one the, they must be right because the other one must, is wrong. But the, and the way out of an antinomy is to come up with some third possibility. So just knowing the structure of the, of the Grand Inquisitor helps you find your way. Dostoevsky has sort of carefully, nicely, I mean, it's not a bad thing, hidden the structure to make it more like a poem, a 
which is what he calls it. And but the structure is there as clear as day, and you you can find it. And so, but and it's not just any old structure. What's important to know from the start when you read it or and reread it and reread it because Dostoevsky has made it as complicated as possible. The, who would are which I think you know already the 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 two the, the the thesis and the antithesis. Well, the Grand Inquisitor is clearly the extreme version of the Roman Catholic Church, as Dostoevsky understands it, and that's sort of obvious. That's where Grand Inquisitors are is in the in the Catholic Church. But and the other one is not much hard uh, is not hard much harder to find. This is really where we left off last time on 279. It's not just any old time that the book takes place. It takes place in the 16th century. And what happened that's relevant to this book and to us in the 16th century? We talked about that. There at the bottom of 280. And just then there appeared in the north of Germany a terrible new heresy. And what is it? It's Luther. It's, it's Protestantism, it's the Reformation, and so forth. And so what are the two sides of the antinomy then? Well, the Grand Inquisitor is the Catholic one, and, the, and his version of Jesus. By the way, I'm not going to keep having to say this, but the way it's set up, just to say it once, it's Yvonne's story in which there's a Grand Inquisitor and, the Grand Inquis- and, and Jesus, but the, Jesus never says anything, literally never says anything, the Grand Inquisitor says to Jesus what he thinks Jesus would say or did say in the Bible and so forth. But if I quoted, if I every time I read something that the, that the, that showed you Jesus's views, I would have to say that Dostoevsky says that Ivan says that the Grand Inquisitor says that Jesus says. That would be a bit of a mouthful. So I'm just going to say Jesus says, though he doesn't actually say anything. It doesn't matter because the Grand Inquisitor is quite, quite correct. Jesus, if you read him as an extreme Protestant, if you read him through Kierkegaard, for instance, a Lutheran, uh, it holds just the views that uh, the Grand Inquisitor attributes to him. He hasn't got it wrong. So here are these two outrageously opposed and it turns out sort of each one hopelessly wrong views going back and forth. Trying each one claiming that you've got to believe their story, either the Catholic story or the uh, Protestant story, and you can't get anywhere till you come up with a third possibility. Now we're finally in new territory from where we were ended last time, and with the I wish I didn't have to have a chart in front of you because I would sort of ask you and put it on the board. Don't cheat. Don't look at the chart till after we talked about it. What's the third possibility that's going to be that's going to get us out of this antinomy? Yeah. Ah, so no, no, that's wrong. But uh, that's good that somebody. I'm, I, it isn't. I thought it was a kind of no-brainer with the. But I mean, good. I, you didn't. You didn't cheat. But it's not so. Oh, no, what is it then? It's the Russian Orthodox Church. I mean, to us, that's pretty strange. I mean, we don't think of that as a third kind of Christianity. But this book is being written in Russia for Russians, and it's the Russian Orthodox Church which is the third possibility, which gets it has a view, which is the view of Dostoevsky and is it permeates the book and is supposedly from Dostoevsky's point of view the true Christianity 
from the early days of the early church before it got ruined by Platonism on the one hand or existentialism later on the other. So now we're going to go into the two antinomies. Um, but just before we do, I had this hypothesis uh, way, way, way back that that's, of course, how the book has to be read. Uh, it's, it's not even, uh, I mean, it's, it's no big deal. I'm not claiming I understood anything that wasn't right in front of you. I showed you where he talks about the Lutherans. Here on page 296, just to uh, show you that it, you, I didn't make it up, about 20 lines from the bottom, Alyosha says, and who will believe you about freedom? Is that the way to understand it? Alyosha is saying to Ivan, against the views of both the Grand Inquisitor and the Jesus figure. He says, Aliosha says, that's not the idea of it. In the Orthodox Church, that's Rome. So there, there you see the Orthodox Church versus Rome. And, and, and you just need, I just wanted to show you there is another view. Now, there's also, and I discovered after I, it's nice if you figure something out and then you find a confirmation. It's, not, it's more of a confirmation than if you you knew it, the confirmation first and then fitted things to it. So once you see the three-fold structure, a letter from Dostoevsky shows up one day in a book I'm reading, and it's exactly what we want to hear. So Dostoevsky says, as my answer to all this negative side, each side you know, shooting down the other side, I have planned this sixth book, A Russian Monk. That's the one we're going to read next. That's the answer to the Grand Inquisitor. And I'm trembling for it in this way. Will it be a, an adequate answer, especially since it's not a direct answer, to the stand expressed in the Grand Inquisitor? Is it an answer point by, it's not an answer point by point, but only obliquely. So that's right. I mean, that's, that's how it is. If somewhere, it's like an Easter egg hunt in a way. Somewhere tucked away in this book is the, is the Russian Orthodox Church answer to each of the antinomies in the Grand Inquisitor. Every one of them gets explicitly dealt with. And Dostoevsky, having his little fun, always tells you in so many words just which one. So you, you, the, the one that didn't get dealt with because it didn't come up in the Grand Inquisitor is baptism. But we saw how he makes absolutely clear with the German doctor that a childhood memory of being loved putting you in the religious dimension, is the existentialized truth of baptism. Well, now you have to keep your eyes open for as you read, presumably, hopefully, ahead of where I am, the existentialized answer to each of the antinomy structures in, in the Grand Inquisitor. And I, don't, I didn't count them, but there are lots of them. There's what? One, well, there's maybe three or five, depending on how you count them. So... Here we go. But now we, we don't know, there's still, uh, now we need to know something about the basic opposition, the basic antinomy, that you can generate all the others. Uh, and then, and that is, first, Dostoevsky sets it up in terms of the, the three temptations of Jesus to turn stones to bread, become a world leader by founding a church, produce faith by miracles. And those are, each of those are going to generate oppositions. Now, and the, but the big deal opposition is, and that's at the top on the chart above the line, Jesus, the Protestant, says 
the people are godlike and free. The antithesis, the Grand Inquisitor, the Roman Catholic says people are weak and slavish. That sort of goes across. That's the basic antinomy. Are people weak and worthless? Here's a little clue, lackey-like. Or are they pure, noble, free, lofty-like? Now, when I put it that way, do you see any connection between who wrote this Grand Inquisitor legend and, and the, the legend? Well, who's, who's got the lackey side and the uh, noble side sort of tar- having a struggle and can't get them, can't get them together and, and would like to get rid of the lackey side? All that is what Ivan thinking. So Ivan has written this. I mean, and Dostoevsky's, it's not a mistake. It's not sort of crazy like uh, Berdyaev thinks that, that this should be, Grand Inquisitor story should be put in the mouth of Ivan. It's exactly Ivan's problem in that he thinks that uh, he is both lofty and lackey and he wants to get rid of the weak, uh, lackey, uh, where, what are these, slavish side of himself. So now I wanted to say on 291, well, maybe even before that, yeah, 287. It's just amazing how it's scattered around in here. Uh, Okay, here we are. Uh, At the bottom of 287, here's the Grand Inquisitor says to Jesus, Thou didst promise them the bread of heaven, but I repeat again, can it be comparable with the earthly bread in the eyes of weak of the weak, ever sinful, and ignoble race of man. See, that's one thesis about it, about what we are. Sinful, ignoble, and so forth. And the other thesis is, Jesus wants them, uh, wants us to be pure and noble, and, and assumes that we can be. At the bottom of 291, Yeah, now here's the Grand Inquisitor's view about the few people who are noble, uh, but they, they are the ones that are not like all those weak ones. They had borne thy cross, the bottom of 291. They had endured scores of years in the hungry wilderness, and thou mayest indeed point with pride at those children of freedom, of free love, of free and splendid sacrifice for thy name. But remember that they were only ten, some thousands, and what about the rest? So almost all the human beings are weak and vicious and so forth. A few of them are godlike and free, but that the the what's the, the church has got to do something for the for the weak ones. And Jesus is so perfect, he has no sympathy for the weak and the way the Grand Inquisitor sets it up, for the weak, worthless humanity. So Jesus makes this demands on people that treat them as if they were uh, saints. And that's what the Grand Inquisitor's got to fix. Where are we here? The top of 285, four lines down. For 15 centuries we have been, we the church have been wrestling with thy freedom. But now it's ended and over for good. Dost thou not believe that it's over for good? No, that's not what I want. Oh, this is Ivan saying about the Grand Inquisitor in the middle of 285. He claims it's a merit for himself and his church 
that at last they vanquished freedom and have done it to make men happy. That is, Jesus has asked so much of men that they can't live up to it. I don't know if I really read the right passage. I I feel I haven't explained that clearly enough. Just a second. The middle of 290 is better. Uh, So uh, the Grand Inquisitor says, Thou didst proudly and well like a god, but the weak, unruly race of men, are they gods? And the answer is no, they're not. They're miserable and weak, and they need, so they need some kind of help, and now the Catholic Church is going to give it to them. And uh, all of this is summed up in this basic opposition. We're still not, you know, we're still not doing any particular antinomy, although we're almost ready to. We're just doing the big deal antinomy, namely Jesus' demand that people be free and strong and perfect, and the Grand Inquisitors claim that we, you can't ask that of people. That's outrageous. We're going to make it possible for them to be weak, the weak ones, even, even the weak ones, to be happy. But uh, the, so it's t- on 286. It's, it's, he goes back. I can, this won't become clear. I can't explain it clearly yet. But the, he, Dostoevsky is going to try to put in the three questions that the devil or, or the three uh, issues. Will, will Jesus turn the stones into bread? Will Jesus perform miracles like throwing himself off the temple to get people to believe in him? Will he... Uh, what? Uh, what's the third one? I don't know. Anybody know? What's that? Rule the world. Well, that's by turning stone into bread, feeding them and letting them... Uh, no, it's got to be a different one. Um, wonder what? Create, I think it's create a universal church in which everyone will believe the same thing. Yeah, universal Antioch. So the, in, in those questions, should we do that or shouldn't we do that? Uh, is, I don't care about that right now, those questions. I want the, what I, the sentence that interests me is on the middle of 286 where the... Grand Inquisitor says in those three questions, namely, should he uh, rule the world by making bread, get their faith by performing miracles, and create an objective truth that everybody can believe, in them is united all the unsolved historical contradictions of human nature. I'm interested in the contradiction story. Remember, Pascal says we're a contradiction, that Kierkegaard says the self is a contradiction. Dostoevsky also thinks that there's a contradiction between the lofty and the lackey, if you like, or the angels and the, and the insects or the good and the bad. We've seen all those contradictions. And it's sort of trying to deal with those contradictions to somehow do justice to the, strength, the, the godlike, so the free godlike side and the weak slavish side of the contradiction that all these antinomies happen. Uh, and I want to say one more word just because it's something to think about. Why does he say the historical contradictions of human nature? You'd think if they're contradictions of human nature, they wouldn't be historical. They'd be ahistorical. That is, as soon as there were human beings, their contradictions would be there, and they'd be there as long as the human beings were there. I don't have the answer to that. I don't know what Dostoevsky is thinking. He doesn't explain it. I think he's probably thinking, though, and not just writing off the top of his head, because he's so deep and so smart. One way to think about it is Kierkegaard's, that people didn't become 
contradictory until Jesus came along as the God-man and showed them that the finite and the infinite and the temporal and the eternal were equally important, equally essential. That would mean that the contradictions started at a certain point in history and were only for a special culture. I think the Buddhists probably don't have the contradictions of human nature raised in their culture. That's one possible answer. I don't know, really, I don't really know for sure what the answer is. Um, see, the Greeks would have only one side of the contradiction. and well, So it would start only with the Hebrews and, and particularly with the Christians. Um, but, and another thing he may mean by the historical contradictions is, and you have to see this at the very end of the book, where he gives you his story about how everything can be saved into a perfect world, which is, we're in paradise here and now, in, a, in, in one of the ways one of the characters would describe what might happen. Anyway, that maybe Dostoevsky thinks that these contradictions of human nature go away if everybody lives in the right way and picks up the truth of Christianity. So I guess, I mean, I like to think that Christianity is the disease for which it is the cure. That once you get the God-man and you get the fact that the self is a contradiction and you have to do justice to both sides, then you get despair until you are able to do justice to both sides. But happily, Christianity is the cure because if you relate to the God-man or relate to somebody else the way the God-man related to the freedom fighters or however you want to re read it, the God-man not only causes you to be in this despair but shows you the way out. In the most abstract way to put it is you can relate to yourself and in a way that's harmonious and uh, uh, blissful, and Kierkegaard would say, is by relating to, relate to yourself by relating to another. If you do that, if everybody did that in the right way, then the, then the historical contradictions would be historical. They'd be in the past. They would, we, there was a time when they weren't. Be, if Christianity triumphs the way Dostoevsky pictures it at the end, his phrase is a star will arise in the east. That means Russia will save the world in code. And if that works, then it, there's historical contradictions are really historical. That's perhaps what it's about. And now we're ready to talk about the three, uh, all the antinomies. I think I just want to see if something I wrote down here I've already read. I believe I have. Uh, yeah, we're ready to see now the, what happens when you spell out the various issues that the temptations were, spell them out as they look to people like Jesus who think that human beings are lofty and noble, and people who looked, who think like the Grand Inquisitor that they are lackey and weak and ignoble. So we start to spell them out. There are three big antinomies. And they are, uh, wait, let me know. No, I don't, I don't, I don't say, No, I just summed up the antinomies once more. I'll do it very quickly. So the antinomies turn out to be give people total freedom and independence. That's Jesus. People are only capable of slavery and dependence on authority. That's the Grand Inquisitor. If you stress the people being slavish and dependent on authority so much, it looks like, well, that can't be right. 
we've got to do justice to their freedom and autonomy. autonomy. And if you, then you stress freedom and autonomy, you stress it so far, as Kierkegaard does, for instance, then it looks like nobody can do that. We've got to take, treat them as slaves and make them happy as slaves. That's the flipping back and forth structure. Okay, I'm going to stop there before I plunge into the structural details of all the, all the different antinomies, because maybe somebody wants to say something. Hopefully, I get tired of listening to myself. Uh, are, you, are you with it? Everybody looks with it, I must say. Thank you for coming, and uh, shame when you podcast people who could have come and didn't. Uh, and uh, Okay, I'm going on. Okay, so first, the economic issues. That's the question, the political question, polit political economic. It's it was Jesus, why didn't Jesus turn the stones into bread and feed all the people? And, and that would seem to be a good idea to do. Then there's, I'm going to just read the three in a hurry. Then there's the community issue. That is, why doesn't he create a church which is the objective truth of Christendom, for instance? and unite everybody into one shared religion instead of all the fighting between all the different religions killing each other for thousands of years. And finally, there's, I'm going to call it the more, there's the economic issue, that then there's the community issue, and that's something like also a story about objective truth. And then there's the morality issue, and that's got to do with confession and miracles and how people get and preserve their faith. So here we go. The, by the way, the first one, the economic one, is in a certain way the most brilliant in that he's foreseen the problems very well. On the other hand, it's sort of boring because by the time we're reading it, everybody knows these problems. And moreover, he hasn't got a very interesting solution. But we have to look at it. Not today the solution, but at least today the problem. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is that in a world of scarcity, there's just not enough food to go around. Uh, this is on 286. The devil says, for nothing has ever, about eight lines from the bottom of 286, for nothing has ever been more insupportable for man and a human society than freedom. But seest thou these stones in this parched wilderness, turn them into bread and mankind will run after you like a flock of sheep. Well, that's, that's the temptation, all right. But the, we have to spell out the, the two antinomies. The two antinomies are either you make everybody ascetic enough so that there is enough food to go around. If they all could live on berries and mushrooms and insects, locusts and so forth, like one of the characters in the book, uh, there certainly wouldn't be a shortage of, of food to go around. Or... And this is, and that's, and, the, and, and Jesus is in effect saying everybody has to be an ascetic. And then we get rid of the food problem. The Grand Inquisitor says, well, in a planned economy in which everybody gives all that they can to the central authority, and then the authority gives it out to everybody in the, as much as they need it, in, in Lenin terms, from each according to his ability to each according to his need, as Dostoevsky is inventing. Leninism as he's inventing everything else as he goes along. In that world, there won't be any hunger. There won't be any people below the poverty line. So now we just have to look at it. I mean, that's what it's about. Now I'll read you a passage or two. Uh, 
the bottom, about two-thirds down on 287 on the right-hand side. No science will give them bread so long as they remain free. This is the planned economy story. In the end, they will lay their freedom at our feet and say to us, make us your slaves, but feed us. They will understand at last that freedom and bread enough for all are inconceivable together. That's the, you need a, uh, some kind of socialist system that tells people what jobs to have and rations out the food and, and tells people where to live and educates some of them a lot and, and some of them not at all and so forth. The whole Russian system, the communist system, not Russian really, but Soviet, uh, that, that's, what, that's what the Grand Inquisitor says is necessary if people are going to eat. Um, and some people, he's always granting, can be ascetics, but only a few. And that's what I, I read before, where uh, thou, uh, there, uh, there are some people at the top of 292 who can go be hungry in the wilderness living on locusts and roots, but there are only a few thousand of them, and there are billions of people. So that's asking everybody to be ascetic we're just not going to work. So you have to have a system that will feed everybody. Um, weak, self-indulgent people who eat all they can instead of eating as little as possible will bring down this economy of scarcity unless, and they can't help but do that because they're too weak to be all ascetic. Who wants to live on, on insects and locusts and mushrooms and so forth? Not me and not most people. And so you've got to have then this, a science. That's the, uh, that's the planned economy science that will feed everybody a lot of good food and uh, that's it. Um, and, but then, of course, and this is the, the punchline, I'm not making it very clear, but I read it already, then they have to give up their freedom. Uh, that's what is implicit in what I said when I said you've got to tell people where to live, where to work, you've got to get, decide who goes to what school, you can take out the best pianists and ballet dancers and chess players and treat them very well, you can treat a lot of other people very badly, but as long as you feed them all, that, that's the most anybody can hope for. So freedom and bread enough for all are incompatible, and the antinomy is that... Uh, Either you have to give up the bread or you have to give up the freedom. And that means you can have either a free market economy, which uh, gives people freedom, uh, or you can have a planned socialist economy that gives the people the bread. And there seems to be no way to have both, but no way to get along with just one of them. So, uh, and, and the sort of, I guess I've read it, I mean, I just, I think I've covered it, but I want to see something. So that so they, they they just one more way to put it. Just from each according to his ability to each according to his need, they all hand in the result of their work to the central authority, who then doles it out to everybody in the, you know, according to how much food they need. This was the middle of two ninety four. Receiving bread from us, they will see clearly that we take the bread made by their hands from them to give it to them. And that's, that's the end of that. Uh, and I don't have more to say about that. The, you you want to know each time, so you should ask yourself now, 
but I'm not going to tell you now, and you can figure it out when we get there. I mean, what's Dostoevsky's answer? I mean, he, he's right, he's brilliant. I mean, either you have a free economy, in which case, does everybody get all the food they need? Is there anybody up beneath the, the poverty line in our free uh, economy? Sure, there are. They're hungry people. They're people who are not getting enough food. Who are uh, and that, but, but we're all very free to start our own companies, to live where we want to, to go to whatever school we can get into, and so forth. And that's that's the freedom without the food. And then you can picture a country. Uh, I suppose Cuba is like that, where there is nobody below the poverty line. Everybody gets the food they need. Not all the food they might want, but all the food they need anyway. And nobody gets a free choice to start a company or to go and start a political party or publish a newspaper or do what any of the other things they might want to do. Okay, that's it for that. Now, maybe anybody want to say anything about that? I mean, I mean I'm going to just claim Dostoevsky's very good at seeing these two alternatives. They really are the two alternatives. It's, it's very hard to have both freedom and uh, feed everybody. However, I just want to say why it's not interesting is partly because, as I said, we know that, that a, that a free country like ours doesn't feed everybody, and a country that does feed everybody won't be free, but it isn't even true. The, the Scandinavian countries have done pretty well at combining freedom and nobody below the poverty line. And, I mean, in Norway now, they do it by having an immense amount of richness from the North Sea oil. But they manage it in Sweden, too, without the North Sea oil. So, in any case, it just, it isn't, it isn't absolutely convincing that, that you couldn't start some kind of political thing. But it doesn't matter. Because it's not what's really on Dostoevsky's mind in the Grand Inquisitor story. So let's, unless anybody has any objections, we'll go on. Uh, comments? Yeah, Beatrice. The argument, though, is that people are unhappy when they're poor. Only because they got no food, I think. I mean, it's a deep thing to say people are unhappy when they're free. That's an important thing, but I don't think it's a Dostoevsky thing. Where do you find it? Hmm. Oh, that's very interesting. Where is that? Okay, let me look at it. I mean, then, then he's got another brilliant idea that I didn't even see packed in all this dense stuff. There is what's there was a big pop, big popular, a very popular book. It wasn't very big, and, and when I was a student, called Dreadful Freedom. But I mean, it was just one of a whole lot of books that were claiming people don't really want to be free. They want to be told what to do. They want governments to tell them what to do. His freedom is too hard to take. I didn't think Dostoevsky thought about that, but now I want to see where it is. I still don't see it, but I believe you that it's there. Tell me where again. Middle of 294. Middle of 294. They see that to the truth, the truth, they will be more thankful for taking it from our hands than for the bread itself. Mm -hmm. Let's go on and see where that leads us. They will remember only too well the old days without our help, the bread that turned to stone, while since they have come to us with very stones have turned into bread. Too, too well they know the value of complete submission. 
well, I can see your way of reading it, and I really wish it were there, and maybe it is, but it seems to me the value of complete submission isn't this interesting thing that people don't really want to be free. It's that freedom is something that's it's worth giving up freedom to get the bread. Uh, and I just, if he's, he'd have to make a bigger fuss about it if he had this deep idea that people intrinsically don't want freedom. I don't think he thinks that. But if he does, then I need to find out. And I got a new, you, you've given me a new piece of my course. Yeah. Uh, when I was reading through the stuff, it seemed more like what the grand Yeah, impossible because of the economic constraints. If you make a free economy, then you can't feed everybody. And, and therefore, either you give up freedom or people are going to starve. I think that's the main line. That there may be Beatrice may be onto something a subline, but we have to I have to keep my eye out for it. Yeah, Chuck. I agree with Beatrice. Uh oh, um, they're ganging up on me. Go ahead. Ah, you're right, you're right. It comes up in a different context. It, it, it's in the morality section, right. Did they, the, the, instead of people, yes, now I recognize it. It's minimal where you see it, where you see it there, but it's all, it definitely comes out clearly when the church tells people what's right and wrong, and then they confess what they've done, and the church tells them whether how bad that was and what they should do about it. And then they do whatever the confessor says. All of this is just the opposite of what they should be doing, namely freely deciding what's right and wrong and freely deciding whether they're guilty or not. And that's right. It comes out under the morality thing, which is really funny. It's different than the way it was. The people were talking about it when I was a student, which was that there was something intrinsically frightening about freedom at all. I don't, but this is much more plausible that there is something people don't want and, in fact, can't stand the kind of nihilism that would come if everybody were told that they were free to decide for themselves what was good and what was evil. And uh, I don't want it. You don't want it either. You want to live in a culture in which, in some way, the guidelines, at least for good and evil, are already in the, in the way people behave and in the language and so forth. And... The Grand Inquisitor doesn't say it's in the practices in the background. He says you, you will, the church is going to just spell it out, which is what happened. I mean, the Catholic Church is going to take this sort of background understanding of good and evil and, the, and just say, look, the Bible says so-and-so, or we, the church, the Pope, whoever speaks, uh, will tell you the answers to what's right and wrong. Okay, that's, we'll get to that. But uh, you guys are on the, the right issue for the morality part. But we've got to do next the community part. I don't know why it has to be next. But you think I should, I could talk, can I skip to the morality part? I think that's risky the way I wrote it. Let me write it, redo it the way I wrote it. But otherwise I'm going to maybe get in some loop. So the next comes the community issue. So the community issue is about whether each person can believe in God in his or her own, on his or her own, or, and without any community support, without any evidence like miracles. And the Protestant view is that you don't need community in other people. In fact, they get in the way. What you need is to be an individual and all on your own. 
And Luther already said, each man is a pope. Kierkegaard talks a lot about people being alone before God. And Kierkegaard also says Christianity has no objective validity. That is, you can't go around and, for, and have a test whether, well, you can't even tell whether the God-man Jesus ever existed for sure, but even if you could historically find out that this Jesus you know, lived and, and said the things that the Bible says he said, if there's no objective truth about whether he's Savior or God, Kierkegaard says, that depends on how much you are condition, unconditionally committed to, to who, whatever. Your Savior and your God is whatever one you're unconditionally committed to. So there's no objective truth in it at all. You see, and it's, and uh, you'll see that the, the Dostoevsky's already invented this. So Kierkegaard, I'm not going to go on about the no more obje objective validity since you had that earlier in the course, but this business about being individual versus community, we didn't really talk about that that it's an obvious thing that in some way the community and the church play a big role in Roman Catholicism and they play a much more marginal role in Protestantism where Luther stands up alone against the church. And the idea that people can stand up alone against the whole society and uh, is something that the, the, the Grand Inquisitor doesn't like at all but it's something that, that he attributes to the Jesus figure as causing a lot of trouble. I just tell you all this about... So, uh, the way Kierkegaard ta talks about the public, or what he calls the herd, is exactly the same view that the Grand Inquisitor attributes to Jesus. Namely, that when a bunch of people get together and believe something religious, it already spoils it. That you should, you have to do it on your completely own direct relation to God. Now, I was going to something slip my mind that I want to say when they get together. I was thinking it spoils. Oh yeah, Kierkegaard says that quote: "There's no truth in the crowd." I mean, what a bunch of people all together believe just isn't going to. It's always going to be sort of banal, leveled, covered up. All the truth that is discovered that's really the truth is discovered by individuals. So here's the extreme version of that from Kierkegaard's attack on Christendom. Remember I said his last book is an attack on Christendom. Uh, the, Christ, the Christianity of the New Testament, this is Kierkegaard now, is precisely reckoned upon and related to the isolation of the spiritual man. You've got to keep focused. This is what Kierkegaard thinks that Jesus thinks. This is exactly what the Grand Inquisitor thinks that Jesus thinks. This is extrapolating positive Protestantism to its extreme. So let me go on. Christianity in the New Testament consists in loving God, in hatred to man, in hatred to oneself and to other men, hating father and mother and one's own wife and child, etc. The strongest expression of the most agonizing isolation. And it is in view of this, I say, that such men, men of this quality and caliber, are not born anymore. It's just totally amazing on how much that's the, the view that the Grand Inquisitor attributes to Jesus. And even a sort of Grand Inquisitor view at the end, that people aren't up to it, because what the Grand Inquisitor, after attributing this amazing view, you know, it comes from the Bible where Jesus says, I have no mother and father and brothers and sisters when they come and say, your, your family wants you, and he's out busy saving people, and that just isn't, isn't going to 
cut any ice with him, and he just says, I've got no family, in effect. And Kierkegaard is just running with that. And Dostoevsky is putting it as the Protestant view. And the Grand Inquisitor says, men of that quality don't exist anymore, so we've got to fix it up. Uh, we're going to instead of asking the Christians that they should live in isolation, the Grand Inquisitor is going to produce one big conformist community, Christendom, the church. And uh, he's going to uh, save people from a, the, a kind of craving for community. And the, sorry, what, what? Oh yeah, that's right. There's a step in between. The Grand Inquisitor says people can't do these things on their own that Jesus is asking to do. So they form s smaller religious groups and each of them claim to be the true one and then they start killing each other off and there are the, these, the axis of sinfulness. Everybody accuses the other one of being the, the bad guys. So the Grand Inquisitor is going to solve the whole problem. Namely, people can't live in isolation. People form opposed communities and kill each other. He's going to fix all that by producing one big universal community. I mean, that was really the vision of Christendom not too long ago. Certainly is gone now. But the idea was that everybody was going to get converted and then they were all going to agree and nobody was, there weren't going to be any religious wars and people killing each other off. And this is what the Grand Inquisitor claims the church is going to produce. Um, on 288, about 20 lines from the bottom. For these pitiful creatures are concerned not only to find something that they would all believe in and worship. What is essential is that they all should be in it together. This craving for a community of worship is the chief misery of every man individually and all humanity from the beginning of time. For the sake of common worship, they have slain each other with the sword, meaning you know, they, they want everybody to believe what they believe in their group. They have set up gods and challenged one another Put away your gods and come and worship ours or we'll kill you and your gods. That's the view. That's how people have acted. And it does seem that's right, that they have acted that way. And the church is going to fix it. So you get to two, 293, about 10 lines down. That is someone, someone to worship, someone to keep his conscience and means of uniting all. And this is the crucial part. Some means of uniting all in one unanimous and harmonious anti because, because the craving for universal unity is the third and last anguish of men. This, by the way, Dostoevsky puts it third. I've, I've put it second. So you see the point. The, the, I wonder what the Russian says a minor point. Is there an ant heap? I never heard of an ant heap. I think it's an ant hill but uh, in, in my dialect. But in any case, it's just a story that they are, everybody's behaving in this kind of totally uh, unindividualized, totally community way. That's what the Grand Inquisitor thinks is the solution. Any comments on that? Because now we've finished community. I mean, we'll come back to each of these because you still have to ask, well, what is Dostoevsky's answer? I just want to keep you asking the question. Are you going to make people as individual and able to stand on their own as possible, the Jesus demand? Or are you going to try to create one universal church, which won't be Christendom anymore, but maybe, I don't know, worship the earth and save the, save the planet, but some, some universal thing that everybody can believe in so that they don't all blow each other up? Or is there some possible third way to do things? We will see.
Okay, now the morality issue. And now under morality, there are four subcategories. Uh, oh, if you look over here. Let me see where we are in the chart. I think just make sure I've got it all up here. Yeah, never mind the third column. That's all going to... Don't even think about that. That's the, the Russian Orthodox. So, okay, why under morality have I got only two of the four? I've got confessions and miracles, whereas uh, Dostoevsky has confession, miracles, mystery, and authority. Now, that's one of the paper topics because I haven't the slightest idea what the answer is. After, I don't know, 40 years of teaching it, I still don't know what the antinomy is for mystery. What the Greek, what the, what the, I, one wants to know what is the church's view of mystery, what is the, Pro, what the Catholic church's view of mystery, I mean, what is the Protestant view of mystery, and what is Dostoevsky's view of mystery. And the same for authority. So if anybody can answer the, that question, do one or the other, it's hard enough. And show me the passages. Where I bet it's in here. I mean, the structure of the book is so rigorous. And if he mentions them, and he, and he never answers any of these directly, but if you do get the right answer, don't write your paper unless you can find in the vicinity of, what, of the answer Dostoevsky clobbering you over the head in some funny roundabout way, like the, the German for the baptism, and you'll see another one in a minute. In a minute next time maybe. Anyway, find the, find the answer and find the way Dostoevsky says, look, here's the answer and you get an A plus and you, and you get to be part of the course from now on. Yeah? I would think so, but it's got to be worked out more. I mean, what, what, where does he say that and what, and what sort of authority and it's got to be a lot to do with the answer. I should put it this way. Show me in the book where the proper kind of authority is exhibited. Not the authority of the top-down Catholic and not everybody on their own. I think it's around. I mean, if, if, if we're supposed to believe his letter, then somewhere in the Zosima part, all those, those chapters when Zosima is telling his philosophy, we ought to be able to see Zosima's view of authority. And that ought to be the answer. And he ought to be able to, and you ought to see in the vicinity something that says, here's the answer. And uh, so let's hope somebody figures it out. I would love to see. And I think mystery is even harder because I don't quite know what mystery is for. I mean, you're right that the authority part is clear what the Catholic Church thinks the, the Pope and the rest of the church is the authority. And the Protestant says, you're the only authority. Every man is a Pope. And this, the interesting issue becomes, what's the solution? That for mystery, I don't even know what the question is. What's the Protestant view of mystery? And what, even what is the Catholic view of mystery? Not miracles, that's a different thing. But mystery. Anyway, there's my speech. I really, really seriously want to know the answer to this one. And I suspect sooner or later somebody's going to tell me. Okay, so in the meantime, let's do what we know how to do. And that is the other two. Miracle and confession. Those are the two most interesting of the, all of the antinomies because their solution is so brilliant and, and plausible. And the antinomy is so plausible. Everything gets better and better from here on. Um, only for now I seem to have lost a page. That would be a bad thing just when it gets better and better.
Oh no, I see where we are. Okay. <coughs> we're in, we're on to confession. So, <coughs> uh, the confession isn't all isn't always on the list. I did I read the middle of 292? I must have. No, I don't think I did. So for this paper topic, the 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 place where the mystery and authority are is the middle of 292. You might want to write it on the paper topics. I was going to, but I think I didn't. It's, it says, the church, the, the Grand Inquisitor says, we have corrected thy work and have founded it upon miracle, mystery, and authority. And confession gets treated in another place. We're going to do the confession right now. So, everybody with it. Okay, so now, we're down to uh, having, we're in the third, morality, and we're in the confession part, A under three by my picture. Okay, so what hap- What is the story? Jesus, according to the Grand Inquisitor, demands that people must get along without moral support and moral guidance. Kierkegaard, on confession, says that... Uh, Confession is a, is a bad thing. You shouldn't, you shouldn't have an institution like confession. And the Grand Inquisitor says confession is uh, necessary for these weak human beings. Let's do it again. So the Grand Inquisitor says people have to be able to confess and be pardoned and forgiven and so forth. And the Jesus figure says that's an immoral temptation that people have to face their guilt individually before God, not some authority figure like the priest or the who is going to just uh, decide for them what, what, when they can listen to them when they confess. It's, and Kierkegaard is again perfectly like Jesus in the Grand Inquisitor. I mean, again, I just want to stress how amazingly Dostoevsky has sort of extrapolated the Protestant individualism to the utter limit. Here's what he says, again in the attack on Christendom. Every human being is gloriously constituted. What ruins so many is, among other things, this wretched tittle-tattle between man and man about what should be suffered and matured in silence, this confession before men instead of before God, this hearty communication between this man and that about what ought to be kept secret and exist only before God in secrecy, this impatient craving for intermediary consolation. So there you have it. I mean, it's the, it ruins people to have this opportunity to dump their problems off or get them off their chest talking to some other human being. Jesus says that every man must make his own free choices and then accept the guilt or not, or then, and then decide on his, their own guilt or non-guilt before God and only that. Uh, but even just the New Testament already makes an important move, according to Dostoevsky, which the Protestants take up, where Jesus says you don't have to obey the law anymore, that the law has been fulfilled in Jesus, and that you now can, to talk like Augustine, love and do what you will. But, uh, and, and, but that makes it all the harder. Because without any law, like in the Old Testament, there aren't any clear guidelines. And even, you mean, just loving doesn't tell you what to do. Are you going to use tough love or soft love and so forth? All that's up to you. There's no 
there's no list of rules for how to, who's, who gets what. So this is the bottom of 289, about to eight lines from the bottom. In place of the rigid ancient law, man must hereafter with free heart, hereafter meaning after the New Testament, with free heart decide for himself what is good and what is evil, having only thy image before him as a guide. That's what he thinks, that's what the Grand Inquisitor thinks that Jesus thinks. So Jesus, there's no way of publicly justifying one's beliefs about what's good and bad or deciding whether or finding out whether what one did was good and bad. It's another way to see that what's higher than the ethical is something that it suspends the ethical. And there you get Abraham wandering alone, unable to explain in the shared language even to himself what he did because all he can say is that he's a murderer. I mean, the whole Kierkegaard suspension of the ethical is in, is in here, in that sentence, really, that, you, that you've got to, you can't have any support from the universal. You've got to be an individual. Um, and the church understands that nobody can do that crazy thing. Kierkegaard's gone too far with his Abraham wandering alone in isolation, totally as if insane, unable to even explain to himself because it's universal. He can't, all intelligibility is universal. So being an individual is really all to be unintelligible. That's, you have to suspend the ethical. Well, you, you've heard all that, but it now comes back in a, in a way that for Dostoevsky thinks, thinks this is craziness, this can't be Christianity. So now, on, and on 295, the Grand Inquisitor says, the middle of the page, the most, secret, the most painful secrets of their conscience, all, all they will bring to us, and we shall answer, have an answer for all. And they will be glad to believe our answer, for it will save them from the great fear and terrible agony they endure at present in making a free decision for themselves. That's part of the freedom issue, again. The, we, we see, people don't want to make a free decision for themselves. They want the church to make it for them. And the Grand Inquisitor says, okay, we'll take responsibility for defining good and evil. A little lower on 295. There will be thousands of millions of happy ones and a hundred thousand sufferers who have taken upon themselves the curse of the knowledge of good and evil. The, the, that is, there will be millions, uh, millions, really, of people who are... Uh, happy to go and let the church tell them what's good and evil. And there will be a few of these people like the Grand Inquisitor who know that there's no answer to what's good and evil. They'll just make one up and pass it around. So they will, it says, peacefully they will die, peacefully in thy name, and beyond the grave they will find nothing but death. That we shall keep the secret and for their happiness we shall allure them with the reward of heaven and eternity. So there's that, that's a whole picture of the way the church makes life easy for people. And the Grand Inquisitor thinks they should be uh, sort of rewarded for that because that's, that's what people uh, need. Now, wait one second now, I'm going to say one more sentence and then one more sentence is again, remember, and this is a really important one this time, what is Dostoevsky's answer to confession? Is he for it or is he against it? Or is there, how could there be a third position which is neither confession a la the Catholic Church nor suffering before God and, and, uh, your, uh, and deciding whether you're guilty or not and then suffering if you are. 
Uh, one, and there is a whole story about confession in here, in the Zosima part. You find it. And in it, Dostoevsky tells you exactly that he is, he is existentialized confession. Now, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, no, I think the secret is no mis... Well, maybe. I mean, I'm, I'm in no position to talk you out of it because I don't know what the right answer is. It seems to me here the secret is simply that there is no right and wrong and, and the, the, the church has just made it up. I mean, that doesn't sound very mystery-ish. Of course, it's not going to be the right kind of mystery. But And, and don't, don't give it up just because I don't know what to make of it. Uh, Okay, I'm ready to do the last one, and we just have the right amount of time. And that's, this is the best one of all. You won't get the answer today, because there isn't time. But it's an amazing presumption. Think of this. Dostoevsky is going to give you, I haven't really said this clearly enough, an existentialized version of bread, where you're going to get it from, from a, from a Christian, from a Russian Orthodox perspective. How are you going to get bread and freedom together? From an, or, from an existentialized Russian Orthodox perspective, how are, you get, how are you going to get the need for community, for shared intelligibility together with individuality? He's got a story. And how are you going to have confession without sort of undermining somebody's uh, sort of individual freedom and moral responsibility? He got a story. But now, for the miracle, how could he possibly have an existentialized story? After all, isn't a miracle something that goes against the laws of physics and chemistry. And the whole point of existentializing everything is to get it out of the, out of the science business, out of the physics and chemistry business, so that when we discover more about neurons and whether, you know, the latest thing, whether when you freely make a decision, your brain hasn't made it a few milliseconds before you consciously make it, all kinds of weird things like that, we're supposed to get those issues the phenomenology, the, the existential point out of these things and not ever get into having to take a view on the neurons or, for instance, whether there was a big bang or not. We're not supposed to think that that's going to settle the question of, of creation. Anyway, I, I'm getting sidetracked. Sorry. I'll get back on this. Here we are. The, why is the miracle thing so interesting and important? How can he have an existentialized miracle when existentialized means non-magical, when the whole point of miracles is that somehow the laws of nature get interrupted and something magical happens. You get Lazarus coming forth from the grave after he's been buried for a week, or uh, Jesus was supposed to throw himself off from the temple and not get hurt. That would, those are real big deal miracles, all right. In a certain sense, they really just show that you can violate the laws of physics and chemistry if you're a god, but that's not what Dostoevsky thinks. So he has to produce a miracle that is really a miracle and doesn't violate the laws of physics and chemistry. Now, I can't tell you the answer yet, but I can read you the problem. So the problem is how, whether people can continue to believe without miracles to have faith, to give them faith. And it looks like those ought to be miracles against the laws of physics and chemistry. So 390... At about 15 lines from the bottom. Is the nature of men such that they can reject miracles and that the great 
moments of their life, the moments of their deepest, most agonizing spiritual difficulties, cling only to the free verdict of the heart. Now, there's somebody in here, you have to find it, who is going to be in agonizing spiritual difficulties, and you want to ask yourself, does he, it's a guy, does he need miracles? Because, well, I won't fool you. I mean, it's Aliasha, because it's got to be somebody who's super good, super strong, really the best kind of human being that you could have. And the question is, does that best kind of human being need miracles when they're in spiritual difficulties, or do or can they just remain free? And so you've got to watch Aliasha and see what happens. That's the first thing. Um, and the Grand Inquisitor says that people do need miracles, and he says it uh, on 292 in the middle. He says, we've corrected thy work and have founded it upon miracle, mystery, and authority. We're back to that again. Only now throwing in the miracle part. Uh, so, and then, when we, what, next time, well, maybe we're going to get close to it this time. I'm not sure yet. Uh, so I won't, but anyway, when we do, when we do all this, no, we won't get to the miracles. But when we do all this, you have to ask yourself again, and when does Dostoevsky does this existentializing of miracle? How does he tell you that that's what he's just done? That's the fun part. How does he, you know, smuggle it in and hit you over the head with it that that was the mirror? You'll see all that in due course, but not quite yet. Um, first, when we're now done with the Grand Inquisitor story as setting up the antinomy, what's now going to happen is that you're going to look in, the, in Father Zosima's story about sort of answers to this antinomy. Some of them are there. Some of them are hidden in other parts of the book. Well, but the, most of them are there. But the miracle one isn't there. Don't look for the... The miracle one is, is not in Father Zosima's uh, talk. And neither is the incarnation. And neither is the founding of the church. A lot of existentializing goes on outside of Zosima. But, but Dostoevsky in his letter says that you should be looking in Zosima for the answer to the Grand Inquisitor, so you better look. And maybe there's a miracle answer in there too, but I've never seen it. I think it's elsewhere. Okay, so now I want to say a general sort of thing about the, the Grand Inquisitor story. Uh, I've said it already, but I think I have to say it again. It's really Ivan's story. That is, it really hinges on a sharp distinction between the, the lofty and the lackey between human beings as super strong, impeccable, free, and all that, and human beings as weak and worthless. And Yvonne really lives in that problem. And of course, thinks that he can, if he works at it, get rid of all this weak and lackey and, and, and become just the kind of pure, free figure that, that he thinks in his story that Jesus wants him to be. And the enemy for Yvonne is the Catholic Church who would treat people as if they were weak when the, the point is to sort of force them all to be free and strong like Ivan. Uh, and he wants it to be perfect and godlike, not disgusting and worthless. And, but Ivan himself also agrees with the Grand Inquisitor because he's perfect and strong and uh, 
feels sorry for or disdains everyone else. So Ivan, that's Ivan's picture of what he wants to be. Now I'm preparing you for something I don't understand. I didn't put it on the paper topics, but we could have. There's an interesting scene at the end of the Grand Inquisitor's story where Jesus kisses the Grand Inquisitor, having listened to this whole rant from the Grand Inquisitor about how Jesus and his Catholic Church have totally ruined people by making them weak and slavish because it's just assuming that they are and building things to help them be that way. Why does Jesus kiss the Grand Inquisitor? Well, I don't know. Uh, let's have a discussion of it for the next five or ten minutes. Um, I'll give you some suggestions. Is it because the, of the Inquisitor's purity, his good intentions, his lofty self, the way the Grand Inquisitor presents himself, he's the guy who can live on the berries and locusts, but he goes and takes on the heavy job of setting up a church to just so as to help all these weak people that can't take care of their own lives. And Jesus recognizes that they're, they're the good intentions of that. Uh, the Grand Inquisitor is, in a way, the defender and helper of the weak. But... The, and, but the grand and the Grand Inquisitor doesn't accept the world as it is. Ivan wants to kill himself because of the way the world is. But the Grand Inquisitor is even better. He wants to fix up the mess that's left by Jesus. The, 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 insofar as the world is a mess because people are weak and so forth, you give them well, lots of moral guidelines like don't torture children and you check up on them when they confess and you tell them oh, you can't do that anymore or you're going to go to hell. And so, so Jesus is trying to, or the church is trying to fix things up. Now, I don't know, what do you think about that? I mean, anybody got their own views about why Jesus kisses the Grand Inquisitor? I mean, the, 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 Ivan doesn't give us a hint in the, his story. Yeah. Yes, it's blasphemous, all right, but of course, Ivan, uh, Ivan writes the story, and he could be saying, you know, it, blasphemy is what is appropriate. I mean, the, the, the way the church gets set up by the Protestants is so utterly destructive of normal people that the Grand Inquisitor is brave enough to just take it on himself to see that that's wrong and to try to fix it. That's what Ivan would do if he weren't just trying to get out of the world altogether. Uh, you want to say something? I saw another hand. Was it your hand? Yeah. Um, I was Well, maybe. I thought of that, and I can't... I mean, yeah, I'll repeat it. That, that maybe the point is that just as, that, uh, as Osama bowed down in, before Dimitri for the great suffering in store for him, so that Jesus sees that there's going to be a lot of suffering for the Grand Inquisitor. You see, I don't really see that Dostoevsky thinks that. The Grand Inquisitor's really... He's creating a lot of suffering, all right, but it's not in store for him. He's... I mean, and it's not even... I mean. Not, not even right that he's creating a lot of suffering. And the way it's set up by Ivan, I mean, he's getting rid of a lot of suffering. Uh, I don't think the issue is suffering. But I mean, I don't have any knockdown argument. I'm just not convinced. I think that uh, the Grand Inquisitor himself says that he's taking on the burden of deciding what 
That's true. So he's taking... Ah, you're good, good. So he's taking on the suffering that comes from having to lie to everybody, to uh, to listen to their confessions, and of course to have nobody to confess to and no belief in the afterlife and so forth. And therefore, good. Ah, I see. That's a possibility. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's true what you're saying. It's true that there's only, that you could have lots of other interpretations. Maybe, maybe the real Jesus, in other words, not the one that the Grand Inquisitor attributes to Jesus, kisses him. Uh, that's another possible move. Beatrice, yeah. I was going to say that. We still have four minutes. What do we get? It, it further, it may help that, that Alyosha plagiarizes the kiss and kisses Ivan, who wrote the story of the Grand Inquisitor, including the kiss at the end. And what are we supposed to get out of that? Uh, uh, Ivan sort of kisses himself, in a sense, because he wrote this. No, no, sorry, that's wrong. He, if, he, if Ivan kisses himself, it's because... The, no, can't cancel that at all. Uh, it's, he, he, Alyosha kisses Ivan. What does he see? Partly maybe the great suffering in store for him. That would be one line to follow your version. Uh, another is to go back to say that he sees the Ivan's purity and good intentions side of Ivan, and he's uh, sort of supporting that. Uh, I, I wrote some things down about this. Let's see. Uh, Alyosha sees Ivan's good motives and hopes that he'll work it out. He doesn't, it doesn't mean when he kisses Ivan that he thinks I, Ivan is right. That's sure. Um, but here I wrote, the kiss is not like Zosima bowing to the ground before Dmitri. Ivan and the Grand Inquisitor think that some men are lofty and some base, while Dmitri understands that everyone is both. That's interesting. Uh, I don't know if that's relevant, though. I mean, I, 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 I stick to your answer rather than what I wrote here. Yeah. I see. You're saying Judas kisses Jesus and betrays him and, and, and so forth. Woo. I don't think that's on Dostoevsky's mind at this point. Uh, it's somehow... I mean, there's been no talk of the actual Jesus and being betrayed and the disciple issues and all that. Uh, but again, you may be right. I mean, you, you have to read and look around, see if there's any uh, hint that that's... But then, but then what would it mean? 
that, if, if, that Jesus kisses the Grand Inquisitor, is that like Jews, Judas betraying Jesus? Ah. Because I've been saying, um, uh, but now I see that there is no place for me, even in your heart, my dear hermit. The formula, all is lawful, I won't renounce. Will you renounce me for that? Ah, uh, I see. says, in effect, no. Alyosha kisses Ivan, even though he thinks Ivan is wrong. I think that's important. And presumably he does it because he thinks that Ivan is you know, doing the best he can, struggling with the kind of self he's got, and Alyosha is going to sort of support him. Alyosha supports everybody, and even when they are going astray, he tries to help them with his love. Uh, he's, I think he's just saying, I love you, Yvonne, no matter, even if you're a practically lost soul. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and Jesus loves him back anyway. And Ivan makes the point that he doesn't agree with uh, Alyosha. He's in fact told this whole story to shoot down Alyosha's view that Jesus is the good person. And Jesus, and he's saying, I love you anyway. That's good. We can stop. That's helpful. Of course, if anybody has a paper topic answer to this, that's also interesting. <laughs>